So last week, if you were here, uh, the first part of chapter 11 is like name after king after name after king, right? And you're like, Ptolemy, Shmolemy, come on. The purpose of that section is to remind us that God is on the throne, that he has a plan, and that you can trust it. And secondly, really the entire book of Daniel, including those up and down kings, is this idea of power. So Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. He was the top dude. He was as good as it got, right? All women loved him. All men wanted to be him. Yes. (laughs) He had riches. He had power. He had confidence. He had everything. Control. Chapter 1. But then we start learning about Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2. He can't sleep. Even though he's got money and looks, and he can't sleep at night. And we follow him to chapter 4 where, chapter 3, he loses his temper over and over. Chapter 4, he takes for granted his own sanity, which God removes from him. And he goes insane for seven years. Right? So there is an illusion that Nebuchadnezzar, this head of gold, you start to deconstruct it. And then chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, it's this constant cycle of power. Whether it's beasts coming up and the next beast taking it out, whether it's a goat or a ram and the goat taking it out, you just see this cycle that no one lasts. This king comes up, that king goes down. This king comes up, that king goes down. So what Daniel is saying is, listen, powerful people will pass. Right? Who can remember the president of the United States 100 years ago? No? It's Woodrow Wilson, but I cheated because I looked it up today. I'm like, who was that? Right? That, he was the most powerful man at that time. He's forgotten. So there's these cycles that, that you're tapping into. This is not going to last. So then what will last? Well, this is the last message of Daniel. Let's go. Verse 36, chapter 11. And the king shall do as he wills. Big debate. Is this a new king? Or is this one of the Ptolemy Seleucid kings from chapter 11, 1 through 35? He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak a Astonishing things against the God of gods, he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. So by now, I hope you've seen, because we've gone... 7, 8, 9, 10, most of 11, 
this is a reoccurring theme. Some kind of a powerful ruler. Maybe it's Antiochus Epiphanes. He is the main type that Daniel keeps going to. This guy with this big ego, power trip, yes men around them, hates Yahweh, persecutes God's people, right? It, he, it, and so Daniel just says there's going to be this cycle of this kind of type of person coming up, right? Have we seen other Antiochus Epiphanes over the last 2,000 years? Well, absolutely, right? We can just name them so fully. So is this the final one, the one that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 calls the man of lawlessness. The one Revelation 13 calls the beasts. Maybe it is. Some would argue so. Some would argue not. Either way, it's the type of that ruler. It is the type. So here's what Daniel adds this guy's going to be like. Number one, he's got a giant ego. Verse 36. He does what he wills. He exalts himself magnifies himself above every God. No one's going to tell this guy what to do. He's never wrong. He's always right. Giant ego. Number two, he succeeds, right? He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. Do you know that evil people will prosper? You might work at a place where evil people prosper. We see it all the time. This guy, pure evil, he will prosper. We want life to be like a 1960s Western movie, don't we? Where the good guys roll in and they whip everybody and they live happily ever after. That's entertainment, that's fantasy, that is not reality. So there will be these cycles. Evil will succeed. Verse 37, he will pay no attention to the gods of his father. He shall pay no attention to any god. People say he's an atheist. Could be. The God of his father, some say maybe he was a Christian that lost his faith or a Jew that lost his faith. Could be. Will not pay any attention to the one beloved by women. Man, you read that, there's a million different ideas of that. Is he gay? Um, does he not like children? I think if you put this book back in its Jewish context, there's really one answer. Because if you look at old writings from Jewish sources, every woman wanted to be the woman that bore Messiah. They all knew Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. And they all wanted to be that woman. So when it says the one beloved by women, most likely, I think he'll hate Messiah. He will be the one that hates Jesus. And then fourthly, he shall honor the God of fortresses. He shall honor it with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He is going to be a guy that says might is right. I will take all of my money, I'll take all of my resources, and I will get the biggest, best military the world has ever seen. You know, right now, the world spends $2 trillion a year on weapons of war. Have we advanced as a people? Maybe. I think we've got a lot better at killing people. Definitely. Right? So he's going to take all of his resources and just build this mighty, incredible, dynamic army. 
I was reading like, what is the most expensive jet, fighter jet ever built? You know what it is? No, an F-37C, an F-35C, excuse me. An F-35C, it's a special Navy F-35, $337 million a pop. Is that insane? Man, you crash that, that's like somebody's fortune. Right? So he's just going to pour, dump everything he has into this. And then it says he'll have the help of a foreign god. There's going to be some kind of a demonic power behind him. And I think you read that in Revelation as well. That he's empowered probably by Satan himself. So he is this bully. He's worse. If you read about the Antichrist that's coming... He has no empathy. You know what you call somebody that has no empathy? A psychopath, right? They have no empathy. They have no feelings for people. They, they, do you know how you test if somebody is a psychopath? You yawn. What happens when I yawn? Someone else yawns. Do you know why you do that? Empathy. Your brain is wired to say when someone yawns, they're saying, Boy, I'm tired. When you yawn, what you say back is, I feel your pain. I'm tired too. Okay, if you yawn and somebody never yawns back, psychopath. <laughs> that could save your life. Just telling you, this guy never yawns back. Okay, he's a psychopath. So this kind of colors in a little bit of this coming ruler. So verse 40 at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king, so that little phrase right there leads a lot of people to say, okay, this is the time of the end. So verse 36 has shifted to somebody besides Antiochus Epiphanes. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. He shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land. It's always Israel. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and de to devote many to destruction and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet... He shall come to his end with none to help him. So it describes this major battle. Some kind of confederacy of forces in Egypt, in northern Africa. What is it? I don't know. Maybe ISIS, maybe some kind of a group that coalesces and get, gets power. I don't know. Man, things happen fast nowadays. You're just speculating though. But he hears about it. Causes a disruption, things go on, um, he goes, battles, and it appears he ends up in what we would call Armageddon, verse 45. This place, 
Megiddo, that's described in Revelation, where there's this final battle. And then it says, he comes to his end with none to help him. Now, why would this powerful person have no one to help him? Because he got his power through fear, money, power. And when you get your armies and you get your stuff through those means, there's no loyalty. It was business, nobody's. So when business turned bad, people just say, I'm out of here. Like when a dictator goes down in a country, do the people mourn? No, they rejoice. Oh, we're glad that guy's done. So it's the same cycle, the Nebuchadnezzar cycle, right? You've got your power through these ways, but when you're gone, no one mourns you. No one's upset. It's just one power cycle after another, after another, after another. So, verse 1, chapter 12, at that time shall arise Michael the great prince who has charge of your people and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Who's he talking about there? The church or Israel? Your people shall be delivered. Israel. And their names are written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end when many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. We did this a little bit on Sunday, but... Verse 1 just says, Daniel, it's going to get really bad. It's going to get worse and worse, a time of trouble like never before. Revelation says the same thing. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse. Like Revelation says in Revelation 16, verse 18, it says that the sun will scorch people on earth. Have you read that before? What do you think that means? Climate change? I always think, man, I read Revelation and I see climate change in there. Like it gets really, 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 really bad in Revelation. And it's also like it's sudden. Like one day it was a good day, the next day the sun was burning me. Like it seems like that. Now, how does that happen? When I was in Revelation, I gave this illustration. As an engineer, we studied flow, fluid dynamics, uh, thermodynamics, and there's this thing called laminar flow. Laminar flow is really smooth. It's easy to model. You know exactly what's going to happen. You have equations for it. But eventually what happens with too much pressure or too much speed, laminar flow trips in a moment and it turns what's called turbulent, right? So imagine a, um, 
a faucet. You ever turn on a faucet? It's really nice, nice, nice. And then all of a sudden you turn on a little bit high and it just kind of gets wild. Or the best illustration is when you blow out a candle. And then the smoke comes up. For, mo- for whatever, a foot, 18 inches, the smoke will just come up very pretty. But at some point, what happens to it? It hits a point and that point stays there. It's the boundary. It's the tripping point. And then it just goes crazy. And there's no way up above it to make it laminar again. Because once it's tripped, you can't untrip it. So I've always thought, I wonder if we can push things, push, 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 and then all of a sudden we push too far and earth trips and things go crazy. Maybe that's Revelation. But it seems to me Revelation and chapter 12, verse 1 are talking about the same thing. Very, very bad stuff. So what's the hope? The resurrection and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth. So Daniel, just seeing these cycles, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Come on, power doesn't last. What does last? The resurrection. The resurrection is when death is finally turned inside out. Well, Matt, how does that happen? Right? How does my body, how does that happen for my body? Right? Because people have died, gone into the ground, grass has grown up on them, cows have eaten that grass, and I've drank the milk. So I'm, all, I'm that dude too. Right? And even if you don't do that, if you're, well, I'm vegan. Okay, fine. <laughs> Every seven years, all the molecules in your body have been replaced. So every seven years, you're literally a different person. So what's the deal? Like, what does that mean, a bodily resurrection? What does that mean? I think if you go back to the beginning, the creation of man was very unique, was it not? God spoke, and every animal became. I want a giraffe, there was a giraffe. I want a platypus, I want a platypus. I want a three-toed yak sloth, there was a three-toed yak sloth. Just like that. But what does God do? God slows down, and he gets his hands dirty with humans, right? And he forms the man out of the dust of the ground, and then what does he do? Breathes. Ruach. He ruachs into the dirt, and the dirt became a living nefesh, living soul. Right? Dirt plus the divine equals a human. Or I just say, humans are divine dirt bags. That's what we are. We're more than just material. There's an immaterial part to us. And that immaterial part for us, to me it's like this. Um, It's like information. Do you know that information can be eternal? It doesn't have an expiration date. It doesn't disappear. Information is very unique. And, And we're very unique from the animal kingdom. Like you look at an animal, they have tiny brains. Do you know that? If you've ever had a farm, you know this. Animals have tiny brains. It's just a brain big enough to keep them alive until we want to eat them. That's about the brain that they have. I mean, the tiny. The human brain is massive. Why? Because there's something unique about us or eternal. We have information. We have experiences. And those are the things that last. And those are the things that are carried through. We're a spirit with a material body. But we are a spirit. That's what lasts. What's this thing going to be in the future? I don't know, but it's way better than what is right now. That the body that we have right now is, are you kidding me? 1 Corinthians 12 just says, it's like the seed of a redwood compared to a redwood. 
right? No comparison. That's all, it's, that's all it can say. It's, d- try to compare those two. You can't. So we're being resurrected into something that we cannot even comprehend. But it says some are resurrected to life and some are resurrected to shame and everlasting contempt. That should be sobering because that's real. God is graceful, but God is not lenient. Do you know the difference? God's grace is this. If you repent, I will gladly forgive you. I will run out of the house and I will put the robe on you and I'll throw a feast for you. Grace. Lenient is, ah, no big deal. I'll let it slide this time. God is not lenient, but he is graceful. The people that do not repent and do not believe in Jesus are resurrected to shame and everlasting contempt. And what's the difference between the two groups? It's your name is written in the book. Have you heard that before? It occurs 14 times in Scripture. And it always is this debate on it. Because if you read Revelation 3, 5, or Psalm 69, verse 28, or Exodus 32, there's this idea in there that says your name gets blotted out. Moses says, hey, if you're going to do that to those people, blot my name out of your book. Revelation 3, 5 says, man, if you're faithful, I will not blot your name out of the book. Psalm 69 says, I will not remove your name out of the book. Now, what does that mean? It causes some people to speculate that every person is born with their name in the book. And then over the course of your life, for those that do not decide to put their faith in Jesus Christ, their name gets removed. I kind of like that. And I can argue both ways, no problem. I like that one because I think it fits God's character that he wants people saved. So important is this idea that Jesus brings it up. It's Luke chapter 10. Jesus has sent his disciples. They go out. They have power. They heal people. They cast out demons. So they come back to Jesus, and they are stoked. They're like, Jesus, man, it works. We are healing people. Even the demons obeyed us. I mean, I can just see them high-fiving each other. And then Jesus just goes crazy on them, like a wet blanket, right? He's like, I saw Satan fall from heaven. Quit rejoicing that the spirits obey you and only rejoice that your name is written in the book. You're like, wow, man, Jesus, calm down, dude. He's having a good time, man. Why does Jesus do that? Because there is a danger in deriving your identity because you're a demon caster or you've got a PhD or because you look like a supermodel or you're a wife with kids that still looks like a supermodel, right? There's a danger in that because those things are fleeting. That's staying on sand. You'll sink. And so Jesus says, this is the identity that you have to get. You are a son 
You are a daughter of mine for eternity. And when you have that identity, you're bulletproof. No one can take that away from you ever. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You and I are an accumulation of a lot of things. We're an accumulation of what people say about us, some of the things we want to optimistically believe are true, some of the things that we hope are not true, right? We're an accumulation of those things. But as believers, we have to become a people that believe what Jesus says about us. You have become my son. You have become my daughter. And your name will never be taken out of my book. That's when you start to shine forever. Because your identity is not derived from something that can be taken from you. It's eternal and lasting and transforming. And you become a star. All right? So, Lamb's Book of Life. So then I, Daniel, looked and looked... And two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And some one said to the man clothed in linen, who is above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335th day. But you go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of days. Here you have a conversation. Daniel and two angels. And one angel says, how much longer? And the other angel says, a time and a times and a half a time. And Daniel verse 8 says, what? (laughs) I don't understand this. Explain this. And then the angel says to him, verse 9, yeah, don't worry about it. And the book ends. What a strange ending, is is it not? Like when you really think about Daniel, this is a strange ending to a book. Crazy conversation. Daniel asks for clarification. The angel says, hey, don't worry about it. You can't get it. And we're done here. It's crazy. Right? So verse 9 when it says, the words are shut and sealed until the time of the end. What would happen is this. When you finished a scroll, you would roll it up, you'd put your wax on it, and you'd signet ring it. And what that meant was this. It's done. This is going to happen. This is sealed. This has my seal on it. It's done. It's true. This is going to happen. So the angel is saying, 
everything that we've said to you, it's going to happen, bro. And based on that, people have two choices in life. Some people, verse 10, will purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined. Who's the active agent in those words? Right? Purify themselves. Who's doing the purifying? Themselves. Make themselves white. Salvation is purely God. He saves. Sanctification is a partnership. Then you and I, through obedience to what God puts on our heart, as we obey Him, as we say yes to Him, as we do what God is asking us to do, we are moved with Him into purification, whiteness, sanctification. It's a partnership. You can't sit on your bed and say, well, I'll just, hopefully God will make me holy. No. I say it's like two pedals on a bicycle. God pushes one, and we respond and push ours, and that just, we go forward. It's Philippians 2, 13 and 14, right? That great text that just, here's how it happens. So, it's us. We join in this process of saying, yes, God, I want to partner. I want to be pure. I want to be made this way. So that's one direction. The other direction is, but the wicked shall act wickedly and shall not understand. John chapter 3, Jesus says this. These guys don't believe in me because they love the darkness. There are people that do not want to be pure. They don't want to be sanctified. They don't want to live like Jesus. They don't want it. And they're not going to. And those two paths take us to an end. So then verses 11 and 12 is just a tangle, right? You read a half dozen commentaries, which I did, and you get, a, you get about seven answers because all of them have an extra answer or two in them. So it's a tangle. What is this? What are these days? Is this Antiochus Epiphanes? Is this the Antichrist? Is this the Pope? Is this Hitler? Is this Mussolini? Is this Bill Clinton? Is this Hillary Clinton? Is this Osama bin Laden? Is this Obama, right? Everyone has their idea of who it's supposed to be. Is this the time of Jacob's trouble? Is this the end where it gets super bad? And what's the 45 days? Does it take that much to clean up? There's so much conjecture. And for me, I always step back from that. I think, what's the actual point? What's the takeaway? What's my point? And here's what I think. When you look at the end of history, Revelation 20, 19 and 20, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 just says this. It's going to be super easy for Jesus. 2 Thessalonians puts it like this. With his breath, he takes out Satan and the Antichrist. He just says, time's up, done. So we can conjecture all about what these days mean and how it, when Jesus comes back, it's over and it's done. There's no cleanup, there's no mess, it's over and done, period. So that, to me, is the point, right? So what can I say in this really quick? Three points. Daniel asked for more information. Verse eight, bro, I don't understand this. Oh, my Lord, help me. You ever wanted more information? You ever read the book of Daniel? You ever read the book of Revelation? You ever read Isaiah, the end of it? And you ever say, man, I wish I had more information? I do all the time. 
Guess what God's answer is to him? You've got enough information, go your way and die. That's literally God's answer to him. (laughs) You got enough, bro. Go your way, die. I'm not going to give you all the information, Daniel, because life is a mystery. Have you figured that out yet? And because life is a mystery, it requires faith in Jesus because of the mystery. And if you try to wrench the mystery out of life, then you'll no longer have faith in Jesus. So much of my faith has increased because of the mystery, because of, ah. Now, I love arguing and talking with people about what this might be in the 45 days and times. I love that, but here's what I know. Anyone that believes they've got it all figured out, mm -mm. I don't even listen to that person anymore because it's way more complicated. You've painted the dinosaur. Remember that illustration? Like, I don't like painted dinosaurs because how do you know what color a dinosaur is from the bones? You don't. You're making those colors up. And so sometimes I think people paint the dinosaurs when it comes to these ideas of the end times. I know some of it. I got the bones of it. But man, you go outside of the bones, look out. Be careful. So I love conversations, but be careful. And the point is this. When you read all this, you've got all this eschatology. The end is, Daniel says, I want more information. And what does God say? No. Instead, verse 13, go your way. Daniel, keep doing what you're supposed to do till the end. And you'll rest, you'll die, and then you'll be resurrected and you'll be in your place. People can get all wrapped up in eschatology, the end of the world, and forget about their own eschatology. I have a personal eschatology that one day my race will be finished and I prayerfully will hear from my master, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. The point that Daniel's getting at the end of this book, the reason why it ends this way is because God's saying the same thing to you and me. Don't get all wrapped up in that. What's your own personal eschatology? Make sure you end well. Are you living like Daniel lived? Spiritual, prayerful, biblical, serving, not compromising. Are you living like Daniel? Because that's why he's going to stand, have authority at his end. That's what's most important. That's why it ends that way. It's awesome, actually. Number two, there's optimism and there's hope. Do you know the difference? Optimism is all about me. I'm going to make it. I'll do it. I'll figure it out. You know, it's that Oprah self-help garbage. It's not real. You know what hope is? Hope is, biblical hope is, believing in somebody else. That's what biblical hope is. Believing in somebody else's ability that's even greater than mine and even has better intentions than mine and wants to do better than I, even I could ask or even think. That's hope. And there's one door, one key that opens up hope. You know what that is? Patience. Is it not? Think about it. If I have to put my hope in somebody else, what do I lose? I lose all control. I can't force them to do something. I can't make them work faster. I can't do any of that. It means I now have to outsource my control, my time frame, my all that to somebody else and say, man, I hope, I hope I can trust you. That's why over and over it's like, till that time, till the end. How many times does it say that stuff in this chapter? Over and over and over. Daniel, you have to put your hope 
in somebody else. Listen, the people of God are always waiting. Do you want my advice? Get used to it. Because you're going to have to. Because biblical hope is I've outsourced my control, I've outsourced my power, and I've placed them in you, Jesus, and I believe you're trustworthy. And in your perfect time, it'll happen. In your time, not my time. And that's hard, hard, hard to do. We all long for something different, don't we? We long for Revelation 21 where it says, every tear shall be wiped away. Disease will be gone. Death will be gone. There's no more night, man. We long for that. We long for Isaiah 65. When the lion will eat straw like an ox, there's no more of this death cycle. When finally the serpent, Isaiah 65, will bite the dust. Yes. But I don't know when that time will be. And so I put my hope in Jesus and say, okay, okay. And he works it out in his time. And I trust him. Thirdly and lastly, you read this, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, it's prophetic, and it's evil. So what this means is God knows all this evil that's going to be taking place for centuries, right? This evil guy's going to come up, kill a bunch of the saints. Then this other evil guy will come up and he'll kill a bunch. Like God knows all this evil is coming. Is that a struggle for you? If God knows it, did he cause it? So I'll give you an analogy as best that I can. So my brain compared to God's mind would be like I'm a floating brainless spore, okay? But let's say I could do this. There's a train that runs down here, six o'clock. And I'm at an intersection and I'm sitting there for whatever reason and I'm watching, I see this little boy go running toward the train track, and I see the train coming, and I can very easily just calculate out that train is going to hit that boy. Did I cause that? No. But in my brain, I can calculate out, hey, I can see ahead, that's going to happen. Okay, multiply that by a trillion, billion, whatever you need to. That's what God's able to do. He's able to see everything that's happening. He looks at history. Uh, he looks at, rather, he looks at all the ages like history. It's all history to him. And he knows how it's all going to work out. He does not have to cause it. Things happen. So God allows evil because he wants a free relationship with people. And the allowance of you and me to decide for evil gives us a true heart to say, I want to be on God's team. And then, he'll use evil to judge evil. Over and over in the Bible, he raises up an evil empire that judges an evil people. All right, I'll use them. And they'll judge that evil, and they'll take that evil out. And he does that with Babylon, he does that with the Medo-Persians, he does that with Greece, he does that with the Romans, he does it over and over and over. Raises up evil to judge evil. And then one day, what he'll do, Revelation chapter 20, is he'll take all the evil and he's just going to crush it all together and he throws it away into this place called the lake of fire, where it's gone forever. And that's why 21 and 22 of Revelation say there's no more unclean thing. It's gone 
purified. Well, Matt, what is he waiting for? People. He's waiting for people. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. He's waiting for you and me to shine like stars and to share the good news of Jesus Christ, that his kingdom has come, that the cure is already in our heart, the cure for sin and hell and death. It already abides within us. Like the seed's been planted and it's growing in us, and we get to share that same seed with other people. You too can be healed. You too can be bulletproof from all these identities of whatever it might be that are going to let you down. You can have identity that will never let you down. A child of King Jesus. So we get to share that like Daniel and be faithful. And one day, we'll all rest and we'll stand in our allotted place, ruling and reigning with our King. Beautiful book. So Jesus... May we understand personal eschatology. May we take the words of James to heart. Life is like a vapor. It appears a short time, and it's gone. May we take Solomon's advice. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, because then we remember our end. That's what Daniel was told. Go your way. May each of us this night go our ways. And may our ways be your ways. May we go from here wanting you to be the author and finisher of our faith, trusting you, putting our hope in you, waiting on you, believing in you, obeying you, And may we live lives that turn us into stars that shine forever. So fill us and empower us with your spirit, we ask even now, to go back to homes, to go into jobs, to meet with neighbors, to share with family and friends the hope that's the anchor of our soul. And we ask this in your name. Amen.